BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. I hope you've had a great week so far. Today on episode 259, we're going to talk about what happens when someone stops working out. In other words, how long does it take to lose muscle, strength, and how does it happen? To start, let's talk about how our muscle and strength gained. For strength, strength is defined as the amount of force produced measured in a specific context. For example, a powerlifter completing a heavy one rep maximum, their 1RM, is displaying force production in one context, whereas a gymnast or shot put thrower is displaying force production in another. In short, there are many different types of strength that are linked together by the common feature of muscular force production. Improvements in strength are the result of both structural and neurological adaptations, sometimes called peripheral and central adaptations. From a structural or peripheral standpoint, muscle fibers get bigger, tendons become stiffer, and store more energy to support force production. In addition to these structural changes, neuromuscular adaptations include increasing the frequency of the electrical signal that travels from the brain and the spinal cord to the muscle, which makes the muscle create more force. Additionally, more muscle fibers are called upon to create force, a process known as motor unit recruitment. And finally, the efficiency and coordination by which motor units create force through complex movements also improves. To sum it up, we gain strength by improving the muscle's ability to produce force through both structural and neurological adaptations. On the other hand, hypertrophy is defined in most studies as an increase in the total mass of a muscle, whereas a decrease in total mass of a muscle is referred to as atrophy. Now, each muscle fiber is made up of thousands to hundreds of thousands of muscle fibers, and in general, it is thought that the number of skeletal muscle fibers that a human has is more or less fixed by the first year of life. While there's active debate around the idea that humans can increase the number of muscle fibers that they have, this is termed hyperplasia, The research suggests that the overwhelming majority of an increase in muscle mass is due to an increase in muscle fiber size. An increase in muscle fiber size occurs when the muscle protein synthesis exceeds muscle protein breakdown for a sustained period of time. While this may sound like muscle damage is needed for muscle growth, hypertrophy seems to lag until muscle protein breakdown is minimized and muscle protein synthesis predominates. In other words, hypertrophy lags until the individual adapts to the training. If the training dose is far too high, for example, that may not happen at all. Now, from a mechanistic standpoint, muscle creates force, which is known as mechanical tension, when the muscle fibers receive an electrical signal to contract. This is essential for muscle growth, as a muscle that is not loaded and required to produce force in some manner is unlikely to grow. Now, lifting weights forces the muscle to overcome external resistance, but this isn't the only way that muscles can generate mechanical tension. For example, stretching a muscle creates tension, and recent human data shows that individuals following six weeks of static stretching but no other exercise actually increase the size of their calves. This example is more illustrative of the effects of mechanical tension, as it's unlikely that stretching, 
particularly in the absence of progressively loaded resistance training, will lead to significant muscular hypertrophy in the long term. Now, resistance training relies heavily on anaerobic, meaning without oxygen, energy pathways to create energy for the muscles. This results in the buildup of metabolic byproducts such as hydrogen ions, inorganic phosphate, creatine, lactate, and others. Research has continually shown that these metabolic byproducts are associated with muscle hypertrophy, though it's not clear that they're directly causal. You see, anytime the muscles are contracting during resistance training, they're producing these metabolites, and it makes it hard to determine whether the metabolites themselves contribute to hypertrophy or if it's just the mechanical force from the muscular contractions. Based on the present data, it appears that the majority of muscular hypertrophy is caused by mechanical signals, whereas metabolites may play an indirect role. Now, muscle fibers themselves are long, thin cells with multiple nuclei composed of myofibrils floating in a watery substance known as sarcoplasm. Myofibrillar hypertrophy refers to the increase in size and mass of the myofibrils. That's the contractile proteins of the muscle itself. And based on animal studies, the number of myofibrils doesn't seem to increase after birth, though no human studies have investigated this to date. Muscles are composed of about 75% water, 10 to 15% contractile or myofibrillar proteins, and about 5% non-contractile or sarcoplasmic proteins. Despite making up a relatively small fraction of the muscle tissue, myofibrils occupy nearly 85% of the space inside a muscle cell. The rest of the space is occupied by mitochondria, which creates energy for the cell, and the sarcoplasm, which is the fluid component that maintains proper environment of the muscle fibers. In the conventional hypertrophy model, lifting weights results in muscle growth through proportional expansions of both the myofibrillar proteins and the sarcoplasm itself. That means that the majority of the increase in muscle size is due to an increase in myofibrillar protein size with a smaller contribution from increased sarcoplasm. Most data looking at what's happening at the level of the muscle as it increases in size shows either a proportional increase in the myofibrils and sarcoplasm or a disproportionate increase in myofibrillar size compared to the sarcoplasm. Put simply, it's relatively rare that muscle growth occurs from increases in the sarcoplasm alone, but what about those rare occasions? This is termed sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, and the only reason I'm talking about this is because people will make a big stink about myofibrillar versus sarcoplasmic hypertrophy, despite most folks saying that not really knowing what they're talking about. Now, sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is defined as the growth or expansion of sarcoplasm. Currently, there is some evidence that higher volume training promotes a bias towards sarcoplasmic hypertrophy to a greater extent compared with higher intensity or higher load training, though it's not clear if this is permanent or more so a transient state that happened to be present when the muscle was evaluated. More recently, it has been suggested that the acute increases in sarcoplasmic hypertrophy seen in some studies may be the result of training-induced swelling, edema. It could be a transient mechanism for muscle growth or a trigger for myofibrillar growth where the increased sarcoplasm component allows for greater myofibrillar growth in well-trained individuals. It could also potentially be lasting sarcoplasmic hypertrophy in highly trained individuals who have reached a sort of myofibrillar hypertrophy limit, but that's not clear yet. In general, it seems that sarcoplasmic hypertrophy is more of a transient feature of lifting weights outside of maybe advanced lifters. It does not seem that the specific training styles or programs tend to produce more or less myofibrillar or sarcoplasmic hypertrophy. Rather, they're likely both happening at the same time in a manner proportional to the muscle tissue's composition. To sum up hypertrophy, muscles grow in response to a sufficient dose of mechanical loading that causes a net increase in muscle protein synthesis compared to muscle protein breakdown over an extended period of time. Most of the growth appears to be in the myofibrillar component of the muscle with a concomitant expansion of the sarcoplasmic component. Okay, so now that we know how we gain muscle and strength, how long does it last if we stop exercising? To start, the rate of decay, that is how quickly someone loses muscle and strength, depends on why they're no longer exercising. So for example, 
immobilization of a limb in an otherwise healthy individual results in a profound loss of muscle size. The amount of muscle size loss depends on the duration of immobilization with longer time periods resulting in greater muscle losses. One study took two dozen young men and put them in a full leg cast on one, on one side. At five days, the muscle cross-sectional area was decreased by an average of three and a half percent as tested by a CT scan. And at 14 days, the average decrease was about 8%. Now, all of these subjects had similar levels of leg muscles, so we can't tell if having more or less muscle to start with alters how much is lost via immobilization. However, recent evidence that's emerging suggests that the extent of muscle atrophy is not really affected by initial levels of muscle mass. You know, more confirmatory work is needed, but I did think that that was interesting. Now, with respect to strength, immobilization also generates a relatively rapid decline in strength. Another study in another two dozen young dudes, they put them in a sling so that they couldn't use their dominant arm. After only 72 hours of immobilization, their hand grip strength went down by over 20%. Other data support these findings, though again, the magnitude of strength loss depends on the duration of immobilization, what muscle or muscle groups were immobilized, how strength was tested, and what else was being done during the period of immobilization. So for example, if the other limb or rest of the body is trained, the immobilized arm appears not to lose strength or muscle size in studies up to about a month in duration. This so-called crosstalk appears to be driven by systemic factors generated from exercise that ultimately preserve muscle size and function. Longer-term immobilization, particularly those associated with illness or severe limitations in mobility, don't appear to be rescued completely from the problems associated with immobilization, but do seem to still benefit from training the unaffected parts of the body. Okay, so that was the story on immobilization, but what about bed rest? So bed rest is another potential trigger for loss of muscle mass and strength. Broadly speaking, people who are committed to bed rest are typically very sick, awaiting an urgent or emergent treatment due to a medical condition, or in the early days of recovery from one of these treatments. While slightly different from immobilization, as there's no structural barrier for moving the limb, rapid detraining tends to occur in a non-uniform way. And I want you to put that in the back of your brains, that this non-uniform loss of strength and size, where strength is lost at a much higher rate than size. Just put that little nugget in the back of your brain, because we're going to keep coming back to that over and over again in this podcast. Now, it should be noted that some of the loss of muscle size and or strength can be attributed to the illness or treatment itself, whereas some is due directly to just being on bed rest. For example, a recent analysis of studies looking at what bed rest does to otherwise healthy adults shows a non-uniform loss of muscle strength and size with bed rest. Within the first five days of bed rest, muscle strength loss is much greater than muscle size loss by a factor of about three. At a month's time, the ratio drops to about two, with muscle strength still occurring at a much faster rate than muscle loss. For example, after five days in another study, healthy young women lost about 2% of muscle mass in their quads, but their quad strength dropped by over 8.5%. After 14 days, another study showed that healthy young men lost about 6% of the muscle size in their quads, but nearly 10% of their quadriceps strength. Now, if the losses from bed rest alone weren't bad enough, adding severe illness to the equation can make things even worse. Now, obviously, different types of illnesses can produce different types and sizes of effects with respect to muscle strength and muscle size changes. But one of the most common reasons why people are on bed rest with a concomitant medical condition is infection, particularly sepsis. Now, sepsis is this life-threatening organ failure that's caused by the hosts or the human, in this case, inappropriate response to infection. There is this condition associated with sepsis, which is called sepsis-associated muscle wasting, and that occurs in about 40 to 
90% of patients with sepsis. It's when inflammatory cytokines, these are basically just signaling molecules released from the white blood cells, drive increased amount of muscle protein breakdown, thereby causing a drastic reduction in muscle mass, muscle fiber size, and decreased muscle strength. It can also cause persistent physical disability accompanied by sepsis. A previous randomized controlled trial showed a 26% decrease in muscle size seven days after the onset of sepsis. Now, what's interesting is that this loss was actually improved, it was reduced effectively by doing intensive physical therapy while the patients were in the intensive care unit in septic shock. I'm not sure how that's going to fly in many institutions, but I did find that interesting. To wrap up this section on bed rest, in short, bed rest itself produces rapid reductions in muscle strength and size, and a number of other disease processes results in additional losses. Okay, so that's the story on bed rest and immobilization, but what about just plain old muscular injury? This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. After going to the gym, what's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? For me, I'd probably do some more reading or get outside of nature, maybe both. Whether we're talking about training, a dietary change, or just life, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you. Therapy can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it. Of course, therapy isn't a single thing per se, but working with a licensed therapist may be helpful for many folks to learn positive coping skills, how to set boundaries, and overall empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suit you, the individual. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash barbellpod today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash barbellpod for 10% off your first month. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, Place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager. Only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Now, injury to the skeletal muscle from like work, exercise, or trauma, so like laceration, penetration, or even some sort of like freezing, for example, that could potentially happen. Those tend to produce this immediate loss of strength that is very, very significant. However, it's been wondered if there's this sort of like secondary loss of strength occurring from getting injured itself. So like does strength and or muscle size decrease further after that sort of initial injury? Now, a recent meta-analysis of 223 studies with over 3,000 human subjects found that after injury, strength decreases to its maximum relatively quickly after the injury, but does not tend to get worse during the initial three days. Instead, the majority of the data shows that strength starts to rebound within the first three days post-injury, though the timeline to return to baseline strength depends on many factors, not only the type of injury, but also the muscle or muscle groups injured, and so on. In general, upper body injuries seem to resolve a little bit faster with respect to strength than lower body injuries over the first three days, though individuals will certainly vary with their overall recovery rates. In general, though, musculoskeletal injuries tend to produce a substantial decrease in strength 
soon after the injury occurs, but tends not to produce any sort of secondary strength losses. Similarly, outside of immobilization or frank trauma to the muscle itself, sometimes that can produce like a loss of nerve supply to the muscle or require surgery to heal it. Muscle size doesn't seem to be affected much by injury outside of those particular conditions. Okay, so with all that out of the way, what happens if someone just stops exercising but is otherwise doing fine? Do they actually lose muscle and strength? And if so, over what time frame? So to better characterize how strength and size change after someone stops lifting, we should probably know how much they vary day-to-day at baseline. Muscle strength varies day-to-day by about 5% in dynamic exercises like the squat and the bench press. This is based on data in both Olympic weightlifters and recreational lifters where strength performance was tracked over both long and short periods of time. For the record, there's not a ton of data on this, and there are plenty of factors such as fatigue, motivation, soreness, and so on that muddies the water. Still, I think about 5% variation is a reasonable estimate of the average strength variation day-to-day. There's also variance in muscle size based on how it's tested, a person's hydration level, and how recently they've exercised. And even if their muscles are swollen, recent dietary changes, like the removal of carbohydrates, and the test itself. For example, DEXA scans, which are used to determine bone mineral density and can also be used to determine body composition, these are relatively precise with about 2 and 3% variation for total body fat and about 1% for bone mineral density. However, with these tests, it is assumed that the hydration of fat-free mass tissue should remain constant at about 73%, although it can actually vary from 67% and 85% in otherwise normal, healthy individuals. Other tools like ultrasound to measure muscle size can vary by the user, whereas gold standard tools like the MRI and CT tend to be very accurate, though cost and access make them less widely used outside of certain research settings. In any case, the take-home here is that muscle strength and size in otherwise healthy individuals can vary somewhat day-to-day. Knowing that, I think we can mostly ignore small changes and instead focus on larger, more substantial differences in changes in size and muscle strength. So, what happens to muscle size and strength when people stop lifting weights? In the short term, there's good data here showing basically minimal changes in most groups who stop exercising. So for example, in a group of previously untrained adolescents who lifted weights for three months and increased their back squat one rep max by an average of 20 kilograms, three weeks of training cessation did not significantly reduce muscle size or strength, effectively no difference than when they stopped training three weeks prior. In strength athletes, now these were powerlifters and Division I college American football players who had an average one rep max bench press of 330 pounds and an average one rep max squat of 462 pounds, they showed virtually no significant strength or size loss after two weeks of detraining. Now, interestingly, and I wasn't going to talk about this because it opens up a whole nother can of worms, but during this two-week period of detraining, or after that two-week period of detraining rather, growth hormone increased by close to 60%. And total testosterone increased by nearly 20%, though I don't see anyone out there advocating for people to stop exercising in order to, quote, optimize their hormones. I wonder how the hormone optimization bros would respond to that one. Uh, In any case, older individuals, it appears that strength losses occur a bit more rapidly than in younger individuals. Similar to the other results we've seen so far, where strength loss outpaces size loss, that non-uniform loss we were kind of talking about earlier. Studies in resistance-trained but healthy older individuals show strength losses within about four weeks. One study showed that despite not losing any muscle size, leg strength decreased by about 15% after four weeks of detraining in a group of older individuals who had previously been strength training for four months. In general, not lifting weights for short periods of time doesn't seem to alter strength or size much in otherwise healthy, active individuals, though folks who aren't as well-trained and those who aren't otherwise very active outside of the gym may lose strength in relatively short periods of time. But the take home here is that, yes, strength can go down maybe in that first four weeks in some individuals, 
although it's otherwise mostly maintained and size doesn't seem to change that much in this sort of short-term setting. Now, moving on to long-term sort of training cessation. In general, longer periods of training cessation produce greater declines in the strength performance of strength-trained individuals. Overall, the loss is limited to about 10% during periods of inactivity ranging from two to three months. Again, that's barring sort of injury, immobilization, bed rest, illness, things of that nature. But otherwise, it's about 10% for, you know, the first two to three months that you're not lifting weights. Where data is available, strength is still above baseline during periods of detraining as well. So it's not like people just go back to where they started from. In one study on elderly individuals who had strength trained, force was still 9 to 14% higher, even after two years of detraining, for example. Still, there's an apparent dose-dependent relationship with the amount of time spent outside of the gym and strength loss. The longer the training cessation, the greater the amount of strength loss. One study in older adults who trained hard for two years, and the authors said trained hard. That's not my wording. They, they said this. Effectively, they progressed up to doing three sets of 80% of their 1RM for something like 10 reps each set. In the next three additional years, half of the subjects stopped training and the other group kept lifting. Those who stopped lifting still retained strength above baseline three years after they stopped exercising. Their leg press and bench press one rep maxes were 14% and 9% higher than baseline. The group who kept training, however, during the interim three years had increased their leg press by about 82% and their one rep max bench by 34% over those three years that the other group had not trained for. Now, all this goes to show is that strength adaptations are pretty persistent. It's not like you just stop lifting and then a few months later you lose it all. But again, the main theme of the sort of loss of muscle size and strength is that it occurs in this sort of non-uniform way, meaning that strength loss tends to outstrip or outpace muscle loss. Um, and this happens in older adults too. So for example, a group of women who had previously trained for about 20 weeks and then detrained for a long period of time, about 30 weeks, had relatively little change in muscle cross-sectional area during this period of detraining, but they did get significantly weaker. In another study, a group of older adults who had lifted weights for six months in a row and then stopped lifting weights for another six months, well, they showed an increase in strength of nearly 50% at the end of the six-month training period. And then during the detraining period, they saw a loss of about 20% in strength. But the muscle cross-sectional area did not change over the course of the study. And finally, a recent meta-analysis on older adults who were previously untrained and then lifted weights regularly for periods of two to six months and then stopped. Muscle size loss wasn't significant until about six months later, despite losing strength after only about a month of detraining. So again, in general, there is this non-uniform loss of strength and size that is related mostly to the time spent not lifting weights. As the period of detraining goes along, more strength appears to be lost, though this is nuanced. For example, maximal power or high-velocity strength appears to decrease less over time than maximal low-velocity force production. On the other hand, submaximal strength, that is, repetition efforts taken to failure or near failure, appear to be larger than decreases in maximal force likely underpinning the different adaptations that are decaying. And so why might that be? And the greater reduction in submaximal strength as compared to maximal force is likely due to a number of changes regarding energy supply at the level of the muscle, which affects things like strength stamina and strength endurance. So for example, in the short term, muscle glycogen levels seem to return to baseline levels with inactivity. That happens pretty quickly. Additionally, muscle capillarization, that is the amount of blood capillaries in the muscle, also change to varying degrees. If recently acquired, capillarization tends to return to baseline in as little as four weeks, but if they've been persistent for a long time, 
Some studies show no changes after 12 weeks of training cessation. There are also changes in mitochondrial ATP, that's energy production, and energy-related enzymes. These all appear to change and go back towards baseline at one to three months. And this occurs mostly in slow-twitch muscle fibers. And changes can also occur at the level of the muscle fibers themselves, with fatigue-resistant fast-twitch muscle fibers tending to morph into more fatigable fast-twitch muscle fibers. Now, another mechanism that's more germane to injury and immobilization is called excitation-contraction coupling, and this can become compromised. So this mechanism refers to the electrical signal that is being delivered by the nerve to the muscle and then subsequently translated into contraction or mechanical force production by a number of intermediate steps involving various other chemicals and electrical charges in the muscle. With injury and immobilization, the electrical signal itself, as well as the intermediate steps that lead ultimately to mechanical force production can become compromised, thereby leading to less force production. There's also mechanisms involving different hormonal signals. And this is particularly prevalent when somebody is on bed rest and or immobilized and or has a medical disease. So during periods of disuse, especially with the mobilization and bed rest, the muscles aren't exposed to significant amounts of mechanical tension and metabolic stress from activity. And this ultimately reduces the production of hormones called myokines, from the muscles that are involved in keeping the muscle in fine working order. Now, immobilization and bed rest reduce muscle activity so much that the subsequent adaptation that's taking place, you could call this a maladaptation, but it's really just an adaptation to what they're being exposed to. The adaptation is to become smaller and less efficient at producing force. And when you combine this with an additional disease state that itself signals greater muscle protein breakdown, the losses of muscle mass and strength can be quite large. But what about getting the strength and size back? What about muscle memory? Now, muscle memory describes an improved efficiency of gaining strength and muscle size in an individual who returns to training after a period of detraining. Sometimes in the research, they call this retraining, but then I'm like, detraining, retraining, let's just use different words. The mechanism thought to be responsible for muscle memory is myonuclear permanence hypothesis. Now, myonuclei are the muscle cell nuclei, and each muscle fiber has many. One of their main functions is to produce protein for the muscle to maintain or alter its size and function, again, by producing this muscle protein. Now, each myonuclei can only produce so much protein, so growing more muscle typically requires additional myonuclei to be added to the muscle. This adaptive mechanism occurs from resistance training itself, but is also one of the mechanisms by which superphysiological doses of testosterone is thought to increase muscle size. There's also some evidence that supplementing with creatine monohydrate does this as well. Effectively, if you get more myonuclei in a single muscle fiber, they can make that muscle fiber bigger because they can produce more protein. Now, during detraining, the myonuclei produces less protein and the muscle gets smaller. The myonuclear permanence hypothesis, however, suggests that these myonuclei don't just die or get lost. They actually persist, and when the individual gets back to training, they regrow muscle and gain strength more rapidly than they did initially to get back to where they were because these myonuclei have been hanging around for a while just waiting for a signal to turn back on. Now, the evidence on this is incomplete. Most short-term studies do show that myonuclei persist during periods of detraining, though extreme examples like spinal cord injury, complete bed rest, etc., show a loss of myonuclei as soon as a week. Longer-term studies on this are also lacking, and no one has really followed folks who are well-trained and then become detrained but not severely ill, injured, or malnourished, and then retrained and looked at their myonuclei. But the sort of experimental evidence actually looking at how quickly do people regain size and strength, it does seem like that happens pretty regularly. And so I think the myonuclear permanence hypothesis is at least partially true, but more study is overall needed. 
Other factors regarding strength and size loss during periods of detraining include changes in tendon stiffness, muscle fiber structure, coordination, and more. But what's important to remember here is that in general, the loss of strength tends to outpace the loss in muscle size. And strength stamina tends to decrease more than maximal strength, which tends to decrease more than muscular power. Barring disease, immobilization, injury, or bed rest, short periods of detraining don't seem to have significant impacts on muscle strength or size. But the longer someone stays out of the gym, the greater their losses, again, with strength outpacing size. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. If you like this podcast, share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.